Welcome to episode 199C of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined for the first time in a few weeks by my dear friend, Courtney Nguyen, who is back home. Welcome home. Welcome to the United States, Courtney. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Ben. I'm doing well. I'm happy to be back home after a very long stint uh, in Asia. So yeah, it's, uh, I've wrapped up my off season, or I've wrapped up my off season. I'm already in preseason mode. How about them beans? Gosh, that is impressive. That is player-like commitment. You, you're back from the Maldives, and you're already in your training block, and tweeting workout photos. It's painful, very painful. But if anyone can do it, it's you. Actually, I'm not sure. I, I feel like you need more rest. Please, please I rest. Appreci- I appreciate that. <laughs> we want to start today with some sadder news. I guess it broke today. We're recording this on or late, I guess early Tuesday, but of the passing of Yana Navatna who was a Wimbledon champ in 1998 and won a whole slew of Grand Slam doubles titles as well. I think 16. Is that right, Courtney? Uh, Grand, Grand Slam, Slam doubles, doubles titles? titles? I believe that's correct. Sorry, I didn't parse yeah. them out from Slam to uh, to Tour. But it was, uh, what, 70, 76 uh, doubles titles wow. across the yeah. board for her? That is a lot. That is a lot of titles. And she passed away um, pretty unexpectedly. I guess people hadn't heard too much about her ongoing battle with cancer, which I guess has been going on at least part of this year, passed away at the age of 49. Uh, Courtney, just what are your sort of thoughts on this and, and your memories of, of Yana? Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a sad day. I mean, and, and yeah, um, sure. it's I think that if you follow, you know, the tennis folk on on Twitter and just if, if and if you're obviously a part of the, the community itself, I mean, it, it's there's been a bit of a cloud um, over things and understandably so. I think I got an an email from uh, one of our good friends, Rohit uh, Brijnath, um, you know, kind of uh, who writes for the Straits Times, who just uh, out of nowhere and Rohit and I don't email back and forth, but but just kind of mm. saying that there's 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 a cruelty in this news that there's a, you know, and I and I wrote back to him. I was like, yeah, I mean, she was one of those people that you felt like deserved more than forty nine years, and and that's that's so young for somebody um, like that to be to be taken away from us, but. Um, I mean, in terms of, of who Yana Novotna was, and, and as I've spent the day kind of reflecting and um, speaking to, to quite a few people who obviously knew her far better than I did, um, but uh, but if, you know, for anybody who listens to the podcast, they know kind of Courtney's take on tennis and on sport. Courtney likes the underdog. Courtney likes mm-hmm. the lovable loser. Um, I don't, I, I, sh- I don't love domination. I don't... Um, great champions are great champions and that's admirable but they don't they generally don't tend to capture my heart in the way that the ones who who have to struggle um oftentimes against themselves um to get the results that they 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 are that their talent clearly justifies um those are the players that that i don't know trigger that romantic side of me that that make me love sports in general i think that that for me um, given my age bracket and all that sort of stuff, I, th- I feel like Yana mm-hmm. Novotna was maybe the first one um, of that in tennis for me who really triggered that. Who, you know, I was a big, st- I say all this 
but at the same time, I was a really big Steffi Graf fan. So clearly, I had my way with dominant. Oh, players. Steffi's like the weird like exception to your rule, right? She is. Pretty much. She's pretty much the yeah. exception. I if I think about it, but yeah. So so, but I I still remember that 1993 um, final, uh, which will go down as as one of the the biggest losses, toughest losses, most memorable losses, biggest chokes, however you want to phrase it. Uh, from Novotna, 4-1 up on Graf in the third set in the Wimbledon final, a point from a 5-1 lead, and goes on to completely blow it. And uh, obviously at the time, I was very happy for my favorite player, Steffi Graf, to uh, to win Wimbledon. But I, I really did feel for, for Jan Novotna and, and for her to, five years later, kind of rectify things. I think that, that just that arc, I think, if you know me, kind of informs a lot of, of kind of how... Um, how I, I view the sport and how I, I see these players. So, you know, everybody that I spoke to today had had such amazing things to say about her. I think the outpouring that we saw from 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 players as well. That who's let's face it, not all players and and most players don't real aren't really in touch with the history of this sport. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, um, so many of them were so incredibly moved by by the news and. Um, yeah, it's just it's just sad. It it's sad to see yeah. somebody go um that that young and someone who as everybody said was was so intelligent and so um I don't know, she she just had an energy about her that that really charmed a lot of people. You know, for sure. That's what I remember from I didn't know her too well. I only met her a couple times on this very brief a pretty brief stint when she was coaching Marion Bartoli on tour, I think in 2013. I believe they linked up briefly. Um, at least in Indian Wells, I think they were together maybe only for one or two tournaments. And just I was struck then by her incredible just energy. It was like sort of, you know, talking to her was getting plugged in, like plugged into electric socket sort of. She mm. was just going 20 miles a minute or that's not fair. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty fast speed, 20 miles a minute. <laughs> and just uh, and going and just, you know, just trying to keep up with her. And she had not been in the sport a long time and it felt like she was just sort of, you know, opening this can and everything was bursting out of her and she had all these thoughts to share and everything. And it was pretty cool being around. And I was definitely disappointed when that partnership didn't wind up uh, lasting longer because I remember thinking this could be a really cool person to have around the sport. And in her Wimbledon moment in 1993, which is, I, I feel feels like sort of unfair that everyone keeps coming back to this one loss as a defining loss when she was a great player with tons of wins and other slam finals and lots of stuff. But it was this really moving moment because she was there at Wimbledon, which is the ultimate like stiff upper upper lip place in the world and sort of on center court, ugly crying on somebody's shoulder. And it was this incredibly human relatable moment that sort of showed the power of sports and how much people want things and how, you know, there's human emotion behind all the, the pageantry and the stiffness. I mean, I don't think the Duchess of Kent was remotely expecting anything like that to happen when she went out there, but it made it much clearer that these are, you know, hum- human beings behind it. And everyone, like Pam Shriver said on your WT Insider podcast today, everyone was extremely happy in the sport when she did get her moment in 1998. And she retired pretty young in, in the did. sport, which I guess doesn't, which doesn't really, ha- I mean, young by today's standards, not young by 1990s standards when she retired at 29. That was more the common thing back then. But um, she it just sort of hammers home thinking that how young she really was and far too far too soon to be leaving this earth. But she definitely less, left a, uh, a very impos- positive impression on tennis and on the world of sport in general. And she will definitely be missed and remember, remembered fondly. Yeah, I mean, even just going back to that, that Wimbledon 
loss. I mean, you're right. I mean, it, it felt weird today to talk so much about a loss, you know, like somebody's and somebody crying after. Yeah. Loss too, and yeah. and it, not just a loss, but a choke. Right. I mean, like this is yeah. one of the most legendary uh, chokes in the history of tennis, not just women's tennis, but men's tennis, all of tennis. Um, it's the, those scenes and that video footage of her crying um, as, as the Duchess of Kent, you know, gives her a hug. That goes up there with any other footage in terms of the whole, like, the agony of defeat, um, you know, mantra in sport. Um, but we bring it up a lot and we bring it up consistently. And it's only fair to bring it up with Novotna because she did have her moment five years later. And yeah. Um, and and yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I tweeted it today when um, when Wimbledon posted their lovely video kind of recapping Vatna's kind of uh, journey uh, at, at Wimbledon um, from two losses to becoming a, a Grand Slam uh, champion uh, there. But um, but that, you know, she was she will always be that reminder of like, don't write people off. Don't write players off. Um, I've, I have a good friend who constantly says, once a choker, always a choker. Not true. <laughs> I know who that is. <laughs> I know you know who that is. I, uh, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, I, th- I feel like Novotna was that, that story and, and is the cautionary tale in a good way of why we don't write off, you know, the Dimitrovs, the Wozniakis, the Halleps, the Andy Murrays, you know, like all these players who have had those question marks and, and have had those um, criticisms, why you don't do it? And and for Novotna to, as, as Pam Shriver said on the Insider podcast, you know, to go back to the site of her biggest, like, uh, competitive heartbreak and to not let those demons fail her and also for the tennis gods to kind of smile down upon her as well. Yeah. Um, you know, five years later... You know, she was playing Natalie Toziat in in the final um, of Wimbledon, and um, but but there's a lot to be said about that. And I do I do I do genuinely feel that at the end of the day, the sport there there is a a, a justice um, that drives the weird metaphysical aspect of this sport, and and good things happen to good people. And um, at least for her, they did. Yeah, they, yeah, for her, they did. And and. Um, and yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's been it's been a crap day. <laughs> that's, that's, is the summary? That's pretty much for sure, and uh, she will be dearly missed. So the 2017 tennis season is almost over, not entirely over because this Davis Cup final is still lingering on this weekend between France and Belgium. The tour parts, the ATP and WTA tour seasons, are have finished up, and as you. Be- mentioned both of them, Courtney, uh, Grigor Dimitrov and Karolyn Wozniacki are the champions of their respective tour finals. Let's start with the women because they were longer ago. Um, you were in Singapore. How do you feel like we talked about the tournament before it started in this pretty even field? And I think it played out. I mean, there was no, I don't there was any result that could have come out of Singapore. and like, wow, that was a surprise because we were braced for anything. <laughs> Wozniacki beats Venus in the final. Another final win for Wozniacki, who'd made a lot of big finals this year. Another kind of high-profile loss for Venus in a big tournament. I guess you could put, take it that way also. Uh, Wozniacki finishes the year at number three. Pretty cl- very close to number one, though. Halep finishes at number one. Uh, Mugir is at two. What are your thoughts on on sort of how the the leaders of the pack in the WTA cross the finish line in the end? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the end of the season and... Um, I mean, look, I mean, it, it's still kind of... 
not that it boggles my mind, but it, 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 it takes me a second to realize that it's true that that this was Caroline Wozniacki's biggest title yeah. of her career. Yeah. You know, like it. I don't know why. It, obviously, it's the next. It's the biggest title behind the slams. But, but it had. Yeah, I. I, I guess for some reason, like once I realized that, I was like, oh wow, okay. Um, and she was phenomenal. And I think that the way that Caroline finished her season was impeccable. You know, I mean, it, her her losses in finals throughout the year up until Tokyo were quizzical. They didn't make sense. In most of them, she didn't show up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be the cruel way to kind of say it, but she was just, she didn't win a set um, yeah. through what, five or six finals? And she was ha- favored um, in most of those finals too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these weren't, these weren't instances where she was constantly playing like the, pl- I mean, I guess she played Pliskova in two, but, um, but she wasn't playing Muguruza or Venus or all these players in finals, to, you know, for the most sure. part. I mean, she was playing players that you would expect that she should be able to at least make competitive or, or beat. And um, losing twice to Pliskova, I think lost twice to Svitolina mm-hmm. as well. One to Siniakova. One to Siniakova. One to, one to Pap- Pap- should be, should be Pavlyuchenkova yeah, in, in that's Tokyo. Right, for Tokyo. So, I mean, the way that she finished was great. And I thought that it was really interesting that from her perspective, at least what she said, um, was that, you know, in, in her opinion, this was this was even though obviously there have been seasons where she's won more titles and finished number one, that this was really, in her opinion, um, you know, one of the best, if not the best season of her career, mm. um, which was, I think, interesting. I, I, I wasn't uh, it surprised me when she said it. I, I didn't think that that was going to be her take on the season. Um, but, yeah, no, as you said, I mean, the Singapore field, the way that it, it shook out, there was really no result that was going to come out of there that was going to be a stunner because, as we said, I think, a few episodes ago, there is a peloton, mm-hmm. a WTA peloton, a group um, that has separated itself from the pack, and um, they kind of move together, and, and they're kind of bustling and jostling and, and shouldering each other for for positions. So, um, you know, I mean, Halep's uh, run – to number one at the end, particularly at the China Open, I think was massive for her. Um, and I'm happy for her, just that, that there is, you know, something that she gets to take away from from this year that's going to kind of give her some confidence moving forward. Mm-hmm. But she only finished about, I think, 40 points oh, ahead yeah. it's tight. of Muguruza. It's really tight. So and I think less than, lots... barely 100 ahead of Wozniacki even at number three. Yeah. yeah. It's super, super tight going into the 2018 season, which is exciting, especially given what's on the horizon in terms of the returns of potentially Serena and Vika and obviously Maria playing potentially a fuller schedule. Um, those were then Kvitova as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, Singapore was great. I mean, it, the tournament was was good. I still, if I had my druthers, I would love to speed that court up a little bit. It's slow. Um, yeah, and I do think that at this point that, Unfortunately, the court kind of is in the play is in a small subset of players' heads. Mm. So I think that Pliskova, even though she made the semifinal, uh, Muguruza, even though obviously she's made a a semifinal before, uh, Halep, who obviously uh, had that great run where she made the final, they've had success on this court before, or this year for Pliskova. But there's just, they just they feel like they're fighting the court. And that's one extra thing that they take the court kind of like with the, with their, you know, kind of weighing on them. Yeah. Which I don't love. Um, I also just think there's a humanitarian you know, angle to it. Like, it's the end of the year. Let them have a fast court. Yeah, just faster. It's like finishing it on an uphill. Be, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, lightning fast, you know, Stanford levels. 
Um, but but just a little bit faster, I think, would would do well. And, and but I don't know, maybe that's as people know, I'm also like really anti like I just don't think that just because a rally lasts for 20 shots that it's a good rally. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that at that point, something's gone horribly wrong. If like after 15 shots, you're still going, you haven't done enough. <laughs> so hot take, hot take. Very fair, very fair. So yeah, so that's the, the finish. I mean, we could have a number one change in the first week of, the, of 2018 pretty easily, um, just with how close yeah. it is and all the players who are playing and be a lot of shifting. And I think it still feels like the the for jello of the tour hasn't totally set and there's be time for things to move around more and maybe it'll find a new mold to get into or maybe it won't it'll just be sort of jello soup for a while which is pretty delicious in itself on to and i guess you went to zhuhai also uh, i don't know sure i did uh, how is that as an event just i'm wondering what like the morale is like this event it's in a kind of odd time in the calendar it's a sort of denouement you know find out what happened to this sort of supporting cast and there's this last hurrah and the chance to end on a high note and certainly julia gerges seemed very excited to win it but i'm just wondering you know I guess how how that feel how that event feels as an event. I mean, this was my second time uh, doing Zhuhai. I did it the first year. Uh, I think I skipped the second. Yeah. Second year, mm-hmm. and then yeah, and then and this and then came back this year, and the event itself has improved dr- dramatically. I think that when it comes to the players, it's not on. It's really not unlike Singapore. I mean, like the at the end of the day, this is the final tournament of the year for so many of these players. They are wiped. They are exhausted. They are trying to manufacture in a lot of ways if they cannot find the motivation organically, but trying to manufacture the 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 motivation to give it, you know, one last go. And I think that from that perspective, it just really depends player to player. I don't think that there's really a um, I don't think it would be really fair to universally say like, oh, um, morale's high or morale's low. Yeah. I mean, I think that. You know, for the Americans, it was clear that that morale was quite low. Hey, Coco. Um, yep. Yeah, like Vandaway was incredibly um, explicit in uh, her comments. But she that... still played well. It was bizarre. I, yeah, I didn't get I her mean, whole but thing that's Coco. But I, but I do think that that's a bit of Coco. Yeah. I remember, uh, was it last year that she won Sir, Sir Togenbosch? And mm-hmm. I did a champion's corner with her. And she said that she was in, like, the crappiest mood the entire week. That I think the quote was that she was full of 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 piss and vinegar um and and just was like uh, didn't want to be there didn't want to compete there uh but won the tournament and played a great tournament and i think that in a lot of ways the same thing was happening in juhai she um after kind of a, an early bumble against Peng Shui, uh where she turned that match around um and kind of manufactured some intensity or some fire she played a great tournament and really was rolling yeah. in the final um, uh, before Yuli Gerges mounted an incredible comeback to win something like I don't know, like eleven of the last twelve games, twelve of the last twelve, last twelve, of the last thirteen. I don't know, but she, she I mean, Gerges played an incredible like last uh, two sets from being I think a breaker two down in the first set. But um, yeah, so it, it really depends. I mean, Sloane Stevens said that you know she she should, you know her lesson learned was that she shouldn't play when she's not ready to play and that probably applies not just to Zhuhai but but everything after the US Open. Yeah, I it was interesting with Sloane too because Sloane I did an interview with her after her US Open quarter and she said and just talking a little bit about the rest of the US Open but more and she said there like I know the rest of the year is going to be tough and there's going to be hard times like China and you could sort of tell that like she's never been someone who's enjoyed that part of the season. 
and she's almost sort of new, even as she was playing this great Grand Slam winning tennis, that she wasn't ready for Asia. And so the question is, yeah, do you yeah, go do, sure. do you go there and feel like you're not really prepared to win a match and sort of show up? And there's a lot of he said for that and sort of fulfilling your obligations and you know not being a slam champion goes a wall. Or do you you know pack it in and give up before it starts? I think I think you give it a shot on some level. But. Yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, obviously, you know, once she got to Zhuhai, she was dealing with a, a a knee injury that she said has been ongoing for for a while. So, you know, I mean, if 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 injury is part of it, I think that that yeah, maybe you you shut it down. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, you you be professional and you go and you try and you do your best. And um, and so yeah, I mean, I think that that where the frustration maybe lies is, you know, this idea of, you know, and I know that for there are some players who are very vocal about their struggles post U.S. Open um, through the Asian swing. And, and that applies. I mean, people say Asia, but it, it applies through Moscow. It, mm-hmm. it applies through Lens. the European indoor season. It's not just an Asia thing. Right. I get I, I, I blanch a little bit when people are like, oh, it's Asia. It's like you play two tournaments there. What are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, um, you play crap outside of it as well. It's the post U.S. Open section of the season i think that where but the people who struggle with that are quite vocal about it but they're but as one who is there with the players you know the last like three or four years like in asia there are so many of them that also like really enjoy that section of the season it's tough because fatigue levels are low or high high. yeah sorry yeah um and so there is fighting that um but it's a i mean there are so many players who understand that like the num the amount of points that are on 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 offer are absurd. Um, yeah. That that it puts them and sets them up incredibly well because these are points that sit on your ranking through the entire season until Asia right. um, next year. Um, and one thing that a few of the players that I had been asking because I was kind of asking a little bit you know off the mic um, to a bunch of different players like how do you really feel about the Asian swing? Cause there's a lot of people back home that kind of ask questions about it. And this was after I did a podcast with, with John Wertheim mm-hmm. for SI where that was entirely focused on the Asian swing. And I could sense from the tone that there was a bit of skepticism with respect to that si- that section of the season um, and whether or not the WTA should be there and invest as much as it should in there. But I was asking a bunch of the players and so many of the players were like, the weird thing about it is they were like, look, I understand that like there are some players like don't like it, but like, I remember one player was just like, we're treated like crap at like European tournaments during the spring. Like, you want something and like the tournament or the people at that tournament would be like, no, like you want transport and it's a hassle. You want, you know, a food subsidy? No. You want a nice hotel room? No. You're staying in like closets in Europe. <laughs> and like in China and in Asia, we are treated so well, like they bend over backwards anything that you could possibly want. So, like, this section of the season is actually really easy, like, once you change your perspective on it. And I was like, oh, that's actually quite a mature way of thinking about it. I hadn't thought about it, but they're absolutely right. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, uh, Zhuhai and uh, uh, Wuhan, Beijing, like, I step outside of a very nice hotel and there is a private car waiting to take me to site. I contrast that to the U.S. Open, where you're like in an, a, in a bus for an hour uh, and not getting home till three o'clock in the morning. Where you know, or or other tournaments in Europe, where 
to get a car to drive you anywhere is an absolute international incident. Um, it's yeah. So I think that it just depends on, on different players and some players just have like an open mind about it and see it within a very like worldly way. I mean, Yuli Gerges, I think is that way. She had a blast in Asia and really enjoyed it. Yeah. And there are others that don't. And I understand that as well. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they, I don't know. There's a lot to be said, I don't know. I feel like players who like kind of like don't like who struggle with the Asian season and struggle with like the the um the motivation after the US Open. I feel like every single one of them need to like sit down with like a Billie Jean King or a Rosie Casals or a Chris Everett or a Martina Navratilova and be like and have those players like kind of be like, "Yeah, we like made so many sacrifices so that you guys could like make a ton of money and play in tournaments all over the globe." Like you know. If we ever, if we ever do, if I think we probably will get a Stephanie Lillehead to book club. If we ever do the Grace Lichtenstein book, just make that required oh reading. Oh my gosh! Exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. For sure. It'll teach a lot of things. That's good on on the women, and I, I agree with you. I think there's some players, and I point out Venus. I think is somebody who seems to have embraced that we're just sort of wherever you know on tour much more openly later in her career. And like last year, she spent. I think she spent the gap between hong kong and singapore in asia like the three week gap like she just sort of embraced it and this year went back to hong kong it didn't play i was surprised i don't know how she was doing health wise or injury wise but didn't play she hired beijing but still made it to singapore and showed some uh some good just showed a lot more flexibility later in her career which is pretty cool to see um on the men's side the men went to singapore went to shanghai uh, and roger beat rafa there for like the fourth or fifth time this year i think fourth and then they went to paris and like nobody showed up and Rafa was the only one of the big four who played, and he pulled out before the quarterfinals, and it all led to a final of, or what led to a run of Jack Sock beating Julian Beneteau in the semifinals, and then Philip Krajinovic in the final to win a Masters tournament. It was bizarre. Um, I totally <laughs> forgot that Jack Sock won first. I was like, wait, where's he going with this? Yeah, no, I was talking about Bear C, like a Masters tournament. That sounds like a recap of like, you know, an off year in Houston, but that's what happened. I was going to say like Acapulco. Yeah, but it was, it was really strange and credit to Jack, not really for anything he did in Paris, because look at that run on paper and it's just, there's nothing to say like, wow, that was really good. Except for the fact that you won matches at tour level, like, okay. But he then made it to London shockingly and backed it up in London and won two matches there in round robin, like beating uh, Chilich and Zverev, which are both legit wins to make the semifinals of that tournament, um, which was ultimately won by D- Grigor Dimitrov after he beat Goffin. <laughs> I think Goffin's London tournament involved him beating both Roger and Rafa and losing to Grigor twice. Tennis is weird. You know, it's just it's just a weird sport. Um, Courtney, I don't know. How, did you watch much of Welcome the- to my world, ATP. <laughs> Welcome to my world. I'm just this saying, is your future. I'm just saying. It was, it was like the, w- the WTA. I don't mind it. I think it's great. But, like, but here's the this thing. is reality. The WTA has, like, had, like, kind of, like, once Serena left tour at the end of January, WTA was sort of, like, anything goes. And there was a pack that sort of emerged to be the lead. The men's game, on the other hand, was, like, Roger and Rafa were the best by far. But with like really not great attendance, and when they like when so when the those two adults weren't looking, the kids just went wild, and just strange things happened. And I I don't know where it's leading. Dimitrov is now number three. I don't think it's a ranking that he's going to necessarily sustain. It's not a very I mean he's there's a huge gap between number two and number three also. 
But I just, like, I don't know what it all... In the WTA, like, I get the sort of, like, meaning of it all. ATP, I'm not sure. I don't know what's going on there. Did you watch much of this fall season for ATP? Do you have your thoughts on Grigor or anything else going on in this world? You can have thoughts about having honest, watched also. I didn't watch much. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I got a text message from a friend being like, are you watching like the, the London finals right now? I was like, actually, no, I'm catching up on WTA All Access, <laughs> like the mag show <laughs> that runs. Like I haven't watched it for a while and I had a bunch saved up. So I've been watching that. Um, so no, I wasn't paying attention too much as to what was going on there. Um, and so I'm, I'm a bit hesitant to weigh in on it other than to say that even though it's weird to think that Grigor Dimitrov is like number three in the world, especially given his season where like great start, great finish, don't know where he was for most of the rest of it. Yeah, Grigor's season, just to encapsulate it, it was he won, got a huge win in Brisbane, beat three top 10 players in Brisbane to win that title. That was like big breakout run, made Australian Open semi, did like nothing until Cincinnati, which he won. I don't know if you remember that either, but Grigor Dimitrov won Cincinnati. And totally don't remember that. <laughs> he, um, but got that draw kind of broke apart also with some non-attendance issues. He'd be curious in the final. Didn't do much for a while then after. And then he wins London. It was just like this on and off season. I don't know. It was very, it was pretty WTA for lack of a better word. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, it, as weird as it is that he's the world number three on the ATP side, I also am kind of like, okay, but if not Grigar, whom? Right. Right. Like it, like. And people would say, oh, Zverev, who was impressive, but Zverev was, like, nowhere at the slams. Nowhere, yeah. Um, and Grigor, Grigor was great. I mean, like, when Grigor was playing well this season, I mean, his Brisbane one run was amazing. I, I was there. His semi, his semifinal run uh, at the Australian Open was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, he played great in London um, in the little snippets that I saw during the round-robin phase, less so during the, the knockouts. But... Um, and in Cincy, I mean, I saw him quite a bit in Cincy being there, but, um, and I just like watching the guy play. So, you know, like I'm fine with it, but, <laughs> but it is weird to think that he's like world number three, but you know, in, as one who doesn't like criticism, unless you offer a solution, I don't have a solution to no, that. There's, like there, there's no player that I'd be like, no, this player should be three. It's like, well, absolutely not. Should they? I mean, uh. like, no, that's the thing. And this is the same thing with WTA. It's like, you can look at it and sort of poke at the. You know, right. cake, but you don't have any better recipe. I mean, well, with with the ingredients you're presented of who is playing well, when, and how, it, it was just a year of upheaval, basically. On both tours, w- ATP arguably more than WTA. Actually, w- ATP has an entirely—I don't know—maybe WTA has this too. Before I say this stat, ATP has an entirely different top five. The five guys who are in the top five at the end of this year in ATP are five different guys from last year who are in the top five. Now, that's just not going to happen very often. That you have a complete turnover in your top five um yeah i mean i think that the atp it just it it just was more sudden you know whereas like the for the wta this has been our it's been a common gear of this car yeah Yeah. like you know like like things are going to be unexpected and there are everybody (laughs) who sits in the top five is going to get criticized unless their name is serena williams like this is just the reality of it right i mean even you know, at the start or even before the final or semifinals, you know, there's all this talk, oh, Venus should actually be, you know, number one or player of the year. And it's like, really? Somebody who hasn't won a title? I mean, not to criticize, but it's like every single player has something that you can poke at yeah. and be like, really? Like, you know, like Muguruza's player of the year. Okay, she won two titles. I mean, she was consistent, made quarterfinals everywhere else, and she won Wimbledon, which everybody loves, and, you know, beat 
uh, what was it world number one and two on route to Cincy. Um, so great, but then kind of disappeared after the U.S. Open. Uh, but okay, that's player of the year. Oh, it, it shouldn't be Halep. Oh, really? Because, you know, she made a Grand Slam final and played pretty well at, at the slams where she wasn't injured. Has the most um, ranking points. Yeah, and it's like, oh, she lost in the first round of two slams. Yeah, okay, one of those, she had a broken knee. Second one, she played Sharapova. Like, come on. You know, and and um, you know, and then it's like, oh, Wozniacki should be. And it's like, okay, I mean, she lost a bunch of finals. Uh, right, so there, were, there was know, a case like, against and didn't everybody. Show up at for it and was, against yeah, everybody. You know, Exactly. That that's kind of my point. Yeah. Is like there's just there's just a pro and con and um but that's kind of generally been where the WTA has kind of sat. Whereas with the W with the ATP I feel like I don't know I don't think people really saw this coming. I mean there all. hasn't been an At ATP like and I think that like I, I said it graphically early on in the year and I stand by this that essentially Roger and Rafa's resurgence was sort of this like really thick icing on top of a big shit cake of a year for the ATP that covered that is very graphic that covered it up and people didn't (laughs) people weren't really understanding what lied beneath was not something you'd be ready for um and yeah it was it was an odd year and it just like I I think you put it well corny just like with WTA this is a more sort of accepted possibility with the men there hasn't been like real ATP chaos the way there was this year since probably like 01 or 02 back when Leighton was number one and things were pretty and you get some random French Open winners and we haven't had like a random slam winner yet on the men's side I feel like we're getting ready for it I'm we got a question if they're gonna be first time slam winners on the men's or women's sides in 2018 I would say yes to both I would always say yes to WTA like any year pretty much sure um ATP I think so I mean I think that if to look at it logically the if one I mean Roger is probably the favorite to win the Australian Open at this point. I guess he has to be. But his health has been getting a little wonky second half of this year, understandably, because he's in his mid-late 30s. Um, but a Grigor could win that, or a Goffin, or a Zverev, or a you know team, probably not on hard courts. But team is absolutely the clear second favorite to win the French Open this year. And if Rafa somehow doesn't win it, team, I think, is a very good next pick. And then grass, I mean... Assuming Novak doesn't come back... Like, right, and Novak, we don't know about. We don't know about Novak. We don't know about Andy Murray. Stan is looking better in practice, and he looks like he's getting back to full speed. Novak and Andy, we're not sure about right now. There have been sort of mixed reports on both of them, from what I've heard, in terms of yeah. how the recoveries are going. Um, although they both are entered in tournaments the first week of the year, so there is some sign for optimism there. We just don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I think there. I would like to see something, if not along the lines of like, and you know, Gaston Gaudio. At least along the lines of like a, you know, someone like a, we used to, call, you know, it's what we talked about before with the Ronich rule. Like eventually, and this year was really the Ronich rule coming into effect almost. The Ronich rule, for those of you who don't remember, was when on the show like four, four years ago or more, we said the level, essentially the standard for what it took to win a ATP slam would go down. And that would leave guys like Milos Ronich there to claim them and maybe several. Yeah, I mean, it was more explicit of, like, there will come a day where there is no Roger, Rafa, yeah. Andy, and Novak, and when those players are gone, who are the players that are going to step into the void? Yeah. It's not You're not looking for players who are going to play as well as those big four guys. You're talking about who are the players who are there in a position to win, yeah. and, and around itch was going to be um, in that position. It's weird to think that he really was a complete non-factor in 2017. Yeah, he had a bunch of health issues, but that dimitrov end final in London felt very Ronich rule. It felt like, okay, when you subtract yeah. the big four, who's left? These guys. 
Yeah. Okay. That's true. And that's going to, I mean, the, the sport will function and move on that way. It's going to take some getting used to, and it might lead to a big enthusiasm gap in men's tennis if they're suddenly, are, it hasn't happened at a slam with the exception of that 2014 U.S. Open where the final was Nishikori Chilich. But, I mean, that year, both Djokovic and Federer made the semis. So that was like a pretty late switch. But if there is if there is a big tournament, you know, along the lines of maybe what even like more drastic than what the women had at the French Open this year when there were eight quarterfinalists who hadn't won a slam, it'd be interesting to see how men's tennis deals with that. And hopefully it's seen as a big opportunity because, hey, the WTA got slam champ Ostapenko out of that recipe. And that's proved a wonderfully amusing and fun thing to have as a <laughs> asset for the tour it's just it's just neener, neener, neener. Yeah. yeah no i mean like uh, the also i mean on the wta side as much as there's kind of like this roundage rule on the atp side i feel like on the wta side it's it is almost the ostapenko rule that like somebody can just get hot like that just you know and just like lawnmower yeah. through a field and i feel like and, men and... should be able to do that i don't know i feel like there should be a guy who can get that hot someone like along the lines of like a martin cleason or somebody you know, who's like kind of in that range, who's like can beat anybody on any given day and hasn't really strung it together. I just, I don't know. I feel like someone, maybe, you know, even like Juan Martín del Potro is like a rich man's version of that back in the day. You know, somebody who... Which he did. He did, and he did do it. Um, but I'm wondering, but I feel like somebody else should be able to. I feel like it's there. Well, I mean, but Kyrgios that's, but that's or somebody. That, yeah, but that's the point, right? The, the Dimitrovs, the Kyrgioses, the teams, the Gofans, the Zverevs. Like that whole crew, th- these are the people that you you look at and you say you should be able to get. Ho-. I mean, you know, Kevin Anderson made a Grand Slam final. Like Pablo Carreño Busta made us. You know, like it's possible. It can happen. Yeah. And I, and 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 this is where you know, and this is something that you and I discuss a lot on this podcast of, of belief and um, of this idea that. That I've, I mean, it's definitely a a theory that I've always held on to, which is that say as much as you want about about the domination of Serena and and the other marquee players that have kind of sat alongside her throughout the years, but player from number one to number one hundred takes the court believing that they have a chance against anybody. For them, I think Serena might be the only one who might be able to to tap into that. But lower ranked players just like go for no. broke and they go and they they you know. Whereas with the Rogers and the Rafas and the Novaks, it's like, how many times have we seen these guys take the court and try for four games and and get broken and be like, meh, oh well. Yeah, that's a, a different you attitude. Know? And and it's it's a different attitude. And and I think that the reason why we have the Ostapenkos and you know the the Svitolinas and even you know even going all the way down to the Muguruzas and you know those players, the young players who are pulling off these big wins is that they have that belief it's it's just part of the WTA tour whereas i think feel with the guys like they need to adjust yeah. they need to step up and they need to realize that they can they absolutely can and hopefully can they can mow down hopefully a they field. can just learn it from looking at this year in which um i'm not even going to include Zverev because i think they see Zverev as being sort of this like special wonderkind to him rules don't apply and he's just sort of the next anointed one but dimitrov won a masters event this year jack sock won a masters event this year dimitrov won london like if they can do it, I'm sure, you know, people think with Sock, especially, if Jack's talking about a Masters event, I can win a damn Masters event. I mean, like, Kane Shakori must have been there being like, this guy won a Masters before me, really? I haven't won a Masters yet? And Jack Sock's when he won? Come on. I, hopefully this inspires them, and they can, they realize that there are opportunities there, and the barriers of entry aren't what they used to be. And these 
none of the big four guys I expect to be playing their best tennis or anywhere near their best tennis in 2018. There's no reason to think they will you be. Don't think, you don't think Rafa's going to still play incredibly well? I mean, very well is different than his best ever for Rafa. Okay, that's a weird argument. No, but right? I'm saying, I mean, I mean, Rafa, you know, had Rafa. He didn't have to play his best ever tennis this year, and he won two majors. Right. But I think that, I still don't think that. Oh, his, I see what you're saying. I'm just okay. saying he took a lot of, you know, L's that he wouldn't. Other, I don't think Rafa, I said this with due respect to Rafa's past. You know, I don't think 2018 Rafa is going to be anything close to what 2010 Rafa was in terms of being a barrier to entry. Okay, I don't really think that that's like a super hot take. But no, I'm not trying yeah. to be a hot take with it. I'm just saying that they're all none of the big four. They're all going to be relatively past their absolute peaks in 2018. That's all I'm saying. I don't think it's a hot take. I think it's just time. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of other tepid takes, rest of the year, <laughs> um, do, who do you think is in the best position to be First-time slam winner. How about on the women's side next year, Courtney? Who do you think? We got a question from Cam on Twitter who asked who are yeah, first I mean, times, who is the best in best position to be a first-time slam winner in 2018. Who would you pick? I mean, the three names that pop out are, to me immediately are, well, I guess four because I keep forgetting she hasn't won a slam, but Halep, Pliskova, Wozniacki, and Svitolina. Mm-hmm. Are the ones that I that I will keep an eye on in, in 2018 only because, A, obviously Halep, was three games of do- from doing it anyway um, and has made two two major finals. Um, Waz is playing phenomenally and, and her serve and her improved serve has really been a big storyline. And I, I, I on- my only um, caveat with respect to, to Waz is I feel like we were here in 2014. Yeah, definitely. Right? Where we thought like, oh, she's going to, I mean, she was like at the end of Singapore and she didn't even win Singapore. But she played People so like, well, my God. But she played so well and every, she was on the short list to win the Australian Open the next year. And obviously to th- that season was a, was an abject disaster for and her. She got Vika second um, round. Let's remember that tournament. She drew to Vika second round and it totally derailed her momentum pretty much from there on. Yeah, and, and, and ran the marathon and, and picked up injuries yeah. throughout and it was a whole thing. But um, but yeah, but but I mean, I I like where Waz's head head is at, and and she's playing well. Um, Svitolina, I still think there's a part of me that genuinely believes that if she doesn't choke, I mean, that she had two really great chances to win a slam this year. She choked away that lead to Halep at the French Open, and if she wins that match, who knows what happens? Um, and then at the U.S. Open, she should have beat Madison Keys, mm. and she didn't do that. And I think that if 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 Svitolina goes through that draw, if she held on to that lead and, and won that in straight sets as as she seemingly was favored to do, um, and plays that final against Stevens, I would I would give Svitolina the edge there. So I think that 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 Svitolina's on on the verge as as well as Puskova. I mean, like with that serve, again drawing Rabarkova at Wimbledon was brutal, and if that draw doesn't happen, you know what goes from there. And one of the the under discussed things that happened from this season and we don't discuss it so much only because like obviously Mariana Lucic-Baroni's story was incredible at the Australian Open but Pliskova on serve in that third set like Lucic-Baroni takes like a lengthy medical timeout which she needed but I don't think Pliskova won a point after that um, Mm. and then proceeded to lose that quarterfinal and then and then go on so I don't know you know like Pliskova's Pliskova's right there um and even at the u.s open she was playing okay and then and then ran into coco but 
Yeah. yeah, we were so as you, people probably remember, we were so high on Pliskova at the beginning of this year that even though oh she gosh. had a top ten year and reached number one at some point during the year, it still feels like a disappointing year. If I had to sit, be honest yeah. for Pliskova, and I think she might be willing to agree with that because she's a pretty you know tough grader <laughs> herself, or at least would she would at least not reject yeah, the theory outright. And um and and I think she, it'll be interesting to see if she sort of redials in late last year. I mean, she has a new coach coming into next year, uh, Thomas Krupa who did that's right right who did uh really good yeah. things with barbara Stritz for this year um and she also been working a little bit in in singapore with uh renee stubbs which was a really fun pairing to see loved that. uh and they might who knows they might work together a little bit down the road as well so I think pliskova is not one to sleep on for 2018 as well and she'd probably be my pick if there's to be the person maybe not the next she might not win australia but in terms of of the four most likely win one i would pick i'll pick pliskova yeah, that's um, but Wozniacki, Wozniacki should be there too. I mean, Wozniacki is too good a player not to have won a slam by now, and it's been sort of is reaching kind of dementia levels, maybe even more, Ooh. of just of just having Ooh. been a, a consistent threat for such a long stretch of time. It's not like Dinara, you know, where Dinara got red hot right. for like an eighteen month period, more or less, maybe maybe even less, and had a great chance in that short window. I mean, Wozniacki is going on a decade of doing this. And you hope that her, for her Woz- sake and her, to reward her effort, that her time eventually comes. But Wozniacki's inability to do it, this is why maybe I blanch at the Dementia of a comparison. I understand that you're limiting it to the fact that, like, she's been, you know, kind of in the mix and, and mm-hmm. hasn't. But, but A, I think Dementieva was in the mix far more consistently than Waz was. I think, I mean, th- just this year in, in Singapore, because... I hadn't really focused on Caroline that much over the last few years. I kind of forgot and took for granted that I just kind of figured she was like constantly a top 10 player. And I, it didn't occur to me that really since like 2012, 13, that it, that it wasn't always like that case that yeah. she was kind of outside of the top 10 a lot of the time and struggling to stay in it. So, um, so yeah, so not, not the constant presence that Dementieva was, but also, when Waz hasn't been able, has made the finals and didn't win, it wasn't because, like, she, fa- like, she, it wasn't because of her. That's true. Although her 2014 final against Serena in New York was not good. That was not a good match. But No, that wasn't a good match. But that, yeah. it was, I mean, I don't think that anybody thought she was going to win that match. No, that's also true. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I, I'm hesitant to kind of say it. It was Serena. But... No one thought Waz was going to win that. You're right. right. You know, whereas like with Dementia, there was always kind of in the back of your mind, you're like, come on, like, you're so good. Like, and it, and it felt like it was because of her that yeah. she didn't no, It get felt like success, as, as, a, so. as a big Dementia fan <laughs> in my day. Yeah, she had definitely like that 2010 French Open was the last one where it was like, oh, it was so there for her. And she got, she would have been hurt and retired in the semi to Skivoni, and that was her tournament. And then a couple others where it just like you really thought. And she lost to, um, am I right that it was that year? Was it the, no. In tw- okay, no, it was when she lost to Stoster in New York. That was 2010. Yeah, it was her last year. Oh, yeah, year. the midnight match. Yeah, that midnight match. And then a couple others. She made the semis in 08 and lost to Yankovic. And the volley against a, Serena at Wimbledon. Yep, vo- volley on match point against Serena in Wimbledon 09. So she had a chance. So I, I, I mean, I, it's not exactly apples to apples comparison with Wozniacki. But I, just, I, mean, I say it as a compliment to Wozniacki <laughs> and to Dementia, honestly. That both of them are just sort of, you know, become sustained players who are in the mix, if not consistently. Dementia dropped out of top 10 occasionally a little bit, too, I think. But um, who were who were there and and were over such a long period of time that it's feels unfair that they 
never got one. Fair, fair. Even if they did have their own flaws that were there and you could point to for why they haven't. So one thing we realized we didn't mention on this show was the next-gen uh, finals in ATP, in, not ATP, well, in ATP, in Milan, which were really, I think, will be most remembered for the opener, the draw ceremony. Courtney, do you have any utterances about that? I mean, like, I don't really have anything to, to say about it that is going to be illuminating weeks later. I think most people, people have got their feelings out about yeah, this weeks ago. Yeah, and I ago. think that yeah. the, the, the error in judgment is so obvious that it's kind of pointless to, like, it's... But it is amazing to me. Amazing. That somehow that idea, like, got through the brainstorming process. Like, it, that is unbelievable. Um, and, For those and, of you who don't know what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, this was, just in case you missed it, I'm sure you didn't miss it, but just in case you missed it, the ATP did a, a round-robin group division by having the six men who had to be sorted into six young men who had to be sorted into groups pick out a model um, from like a lineup and then that model would walk down the runway with them and sort of grind up on them or do something to them and then reveal somewhere on her body where the letter a or b and it was just gross it was very strange it was such an odd odd choice on so many levels especially for like the youth tournament it was yeah just weird. And, and 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 i mean obviously in the current climate and you know, like it just, and and I don't, I obviously I have no idea how things are done across the aisle, but I I know that from our side of the aisle, uh, you know, draw there are rehearsal ceremonies for for draw ceremonies of that magnitude. These are not things that are slapped together, willy nilly, where something happens and is like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that was impromptu. Like no, there, I mean, these things are like scripted out, especially when you're live streaming. And have to worry about time. So I just, I, I it boggles my mind that it was approved. Um, but at the end of the day, I have nothing to add other than just like, really? Like, what? Uh, whatever. Yeah, I hope there's just a lesson learned. It was just such a bizarre outlier in 2017 in tennis. Like, because, and maybe Red Bull is to blame. I don't know, because Red Bull, you know, is a new sponsor in tennis. But just like ATP usually has a taste level that is not that. And so it was just jarringly... It was a it was such a bizarrely missed note by the orchestra of tennis that <laughs> just everyone's dropping their opera glasses and going what 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 is the, what and it was not good um, yeah so that's that and the actual tennis was kind of interesting I the the yeah Young Chung yeah Young Chung won I liked actually weirdly um, I really liked the headset coaching thing they did okay hold on as a i gotta hear this i got because yeah, i go have ahead. thoughts on, no 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 explain your thing okay. and explain why you liked it because i just i was fuming the entire time about this but continue okay here's what i liked i liked that the audio was much just if we're just purely compare it to wta coaching on court the audio was much clearer you could hear player and coach very clearly on both sides which you can't usually hear the player all that clearly on wta coaching which is frustrating secondly it was all in English, which I realize is a competitive disadvantage. At the same time, Hyun Chung did manage to win this tournament. Um, and that makes it much more comprehensible. If you want to do it for entertainment, it loses the entertainment value when they're coming out and speaking Czech or Polish or Chinese or whatever it happens in some other coaching timeouts. And if that's, I understand that being a rule, being opposed for competitive reasons, but I think tennis is 
has a language that is English that's used on tour. And almost all tennis players, if not all, are fluent in at least the tennis terms of English. And they play doubles with other players and they can get on with it. Um, and I, I don't know, something about it just, it made it, it made it feel like you're eavesdropping on a phone call or something. Like the, the conversations just seemed much more two-way. There was nothing where it was just the player sitting there and having words bounce off them. The players were all talking and it was a give and take. I don't need coaching, but if you're going to have coaching, I think just the delivery mechanism of headset from sidelines is much cleaner and better than uh, the coming on court when requested. Are you done? Yeah, I'm done. That is baloney. That is a <laughs> load of absolute horse crap. That's a bunch of malarkey. And this is why, okay? Okay. The criticism with respect to on-court coaching has always been like three like two or threefold a that tennis is a solo sport and no one mm-hmm. should you know you shouldn't be helping these players figure out their shit that's number one number sure. two it's so sexist to watch these women being coached by men and being talked down to by their coaches or parents or whatever okay, okay. and number three it's not entertaining at all it's pointless blah, blah, blah. i don't even know but it's mainly it's been those first two things Okay. All of a sudden, I'm sitting here and I'm watching the next gen finals and I'm watching Twitter and I'm seeing all these people say, oh, man, this thing's so cool. What, how great is this? I think they it all addressed. Speak- no, it doesn't address a goddamn thing because either it's supposed to be a solo sport, in which case, regardless of whether it's freaking headsets or a coach coming down, oh. you're still pissed off because you're not getting the solo value of things. Or secondly... Oh, it's sexist? Okay, it's only sexist when a, when the girls do it, but when the guys do it, it doesn't make those men look small and like idiots and like they can't tie their own freaking shoelaces because their coach has to tell them to freaking eat a banana. That doesn't make sense. Like there's complete and utter cognitive dissonance. It's hypocritical. There's no consistency there. Like all of a sudden, ever, no one was criticizing it. And yet like for whatever reason, when the women do it, it's like, oh, this is an absolute abject disaster. Explain that to me. It doesn't. It it absolutely doesn't make sense. Like the so overwhelming th- positive response that I saw, at least on my Twitter, with respect to the coaching that was going on in the next gen finals, was absolutely shocking. Considering all of the the absolute right. ire that on court coaching gets in women's tennis. Right. And here's the thing is because I think that it did address. Some of the weaknesses. Okay, to be clear, and I've said this consistently, I think there should be no mid-match coaching in tennis. Period. I would rather have there be none. All right, that's where I stand on that. But if you're going to have it, the way the ATP did it was better for TV. It had the audio be much better. It had it be comprehensible in English, and it had this system where the players maybe they could sit there in complete silence, but they weren't. And I don't know if that's a male-female dynamic difference or just the distance they were on on the phone, or also that it was an exhibition and not an actual competitive. Maybe, match. but but these guys were but some Sorry, of them were they were some, bantering. They were bantering. You were not there was, bantering there in was, a match. There was the Shapovalov thing that was the banter about the coffee, but that was during injury timeout. They had like a lot of time to kill. But like Borna Chorich was freaking out on these calls and like getting all worked up. And then at the end, he would say, okay, give me some energy. Give me some energy. <laughs> and his coach would go like, come on, Borna. And then he'd be like, thank you. And it, would, it was bizarre. It was and like that's a very good bi- thing. I don't. I, I didn't I just say it's a good thing. I didn't dude. say it's a good okay, thing. Okay, but if you're talking about the, uh, the entertainment value of the thing, 
I don't know, man. Like, that, that doesn't even make sense to me because the entertainment value of, like, watching, okay, I get it. We don't speak Polish, so we don't understand what's going on between Caroline and Peter. Right. Although it's still entertaining regardless because, as you know, one of my favorite things is to kind of just, like, make up the dialogue. <laughs> oh, it's fun. It's very fun to overdub the Wozniacki coach in 10 minutes. It's, it's great. Fair. We've all done that. It's yeah. great. Uh, you know, but... Halep and Cahill, Sumik and Mukuruza for what it is um mm. you know uh sloan and kamau like really the, you know madison and Lindsay. really these are boring coaching timeouts they're not boring coaching timeouts i don't think anyone's saying those particular ones are boring okay you're taking a a single week of six timeouts was every single one of them interesting was every single one that young chung did interesting I'm I didn't guessing see actually no. any Hyunchung matches. Sure. But... And I'm guessing that they probably weren't, even if it was confined to English. My point is, it was just like, I don't know, like the absolute canyon <laughs> that divided the response to freaking headsets. They were just very different. I, I, I if uh... you just look, if you just, if you put together a mashup video of alternating ATP, the next gen coaching conversations and WTA coaching conversations you would just see such a big difference in them they were just they were just very different the dynamic was totally different object subjectively i think it was better i still stand by that i don't think there should be any but if you're gonna do it do you think that on-court coaching is sexist in the wta you've said this before i know i've had this conversation with you i think it has i think it certainly has sexist optics a lot of time yeah Ooh, when the optics. woman is when the woman is trailing in the match and calls the guy and sits there as he sort of lectures her on sometimes incredibly basic seeming things. And that's not what you saw during the next gen final headset baloney? Well, the next the headset baloney they the did only it between every set. There was a, they didn't have to, they didn't have to request the coaching timeout. They just it just happened in between every set. It was one difference. No, um, dude, that's so illusory. That's such I an illusory difference, man. I'm not like I said, I'm still anti all coaching. I just think if you're going to do it the way ATT did it was better. That's that's what I'm standing by. I don't know. The criticisms that I've heard from so many fans terms of being, and from commentators about the whole sexist nature, like using that as this reason why the WTA shouldn't have. And, and let's be clear. I'm the same as you. I don't really I'm completely agnostic with respect to on-court coaching. I don't care. Like if it happens. OK, if it, that wasn't the rule, fine. I don't lose sleep over it. I don't think that it absolutely guts the heart and soul of tennis as a sport i think that's like a dumb argument to make like and it's a thing that happens that you don't even have to pay attention to it's just a thing that happens like in america it happens during a commercial timeout like you literally don't see it mm -hmm. but the the biggest criticisms have always been with respect to encore coaching that these players have to do it themselves and that it's sexist when the girl when the girls call down their coaches and i've argued it and none of that is alleviated by a headset system. Well, it's I mean, in terms of the sexist at all. complaint or angle, they're they're all men in the ATP coach. Well, sure, it's but that's my point. Is that this whole? But that's my whole point. Is that this optics of like, oh, it's sexist. It's a coach talking to their player. The fact that you say that it's a man talking to a woman, that's on you. It's not inherently sexist. Like, it's not the optics of it. That argument has always been complete and utter BS. Okay. Complete and utter BS. But, like, yeah, but it was just weird. Like, all of a sudden, it's like they put on their headsets, and then it was, like, banter. And I was like, really? That's what people want to see? Oh, this is so great. Really? They're talking about nothing? 
okay, that's cool. People think that that's fun. And then, like, Chorich is having an absolute utter meltdown during his coaching time. It's, oh, isn't that entertaining? But then, like, when the girls do it, it's like, oh, you're so weak. Why can't you control your emotions? Oh, it's so embarrassing. Look at her whine to her coach. I'm just saying, I'm throwing it out there. People need to think about that and reconcile their opinions about it. And if you want to let me, you want to lay into me on it, feel free. But and me too. it if, was if you... amazing. It was absolutely amazing to me. Like the differing takes on, on court, on, on, on headset coaching or whatever, mid-match coaching right. in uh, during the next gen finals versus what is constantly brought up nonstop throughout the season for the last like five, six years with respect to WTA. So just purely on the mechanism to get to what really was my only point with this. Do you think, would you be open to the WTA trying headset from the sideline method instead of the on-court coach visit with the portable mic? I think it's weird. Honestly, I think that it's far more natural to sit there and talk to your coach face to face Mm -hmm. than to like phone, like phone a friend. That's true. (laughs) You know, like, I feel like that's, like, way more artificial and odd. It helps with audio, no doubt. I mean, there are definitely coaches on the WTA side that, like, cover up their mics. Hey, Sam Simic, yep. Whatever. But, um, and and you're right that sometimes it doesn't pick up on the player talking. That's not always the case. But but that is, you know, there is a a general, there's a, a court mic as well as it's supposed to be picked up off of the... Coach's mic, and that doesn't always happen. And so there can be improvements in how the technology is utilized. But the criticism about WTA coaching has never been about the technology. No, that's true. That's true. Um, Right? No one's ever, oh, I wish I could hear, I don't know, like, Joe Conta better when she talks to Wim Fazette. That is not a thing that is said. But it would still be nice. What is said is that what is said is that, I'm sure. But But what is said is that it's sexist, and what it's said is that it makes female tennis players look like they don't know what the freak they're doing out there because their coach has to come tell them what to do. And all I'm saying is that the next gen finals had pretty much in concept the exact same thing and the reaction was far more positive than anything that the girls have ever considered. And you're and you're right. And I would like to ask I I'm just asking the question as to why. And you're right that the the that's men all. could have received a lot of the same sort of mockery had they wanted to. If that's what the equality is here because I mean like Andre Rublev remember being asking his coach like should I change my racket should I change my racket like how the hell does the coach know he's not feeling your racket you decide to change the racket yourself like it was a lot of things that just like didn't that didn't always come off as being wow they know everything and it was sort of a more equal playing field to see the men suddenly put men suddenly put in this position but I don't know the other thing I liked about the coaching with the headsets is it reminded me of the movie Spy which I really loved and just like these two people on headsets having conversations about their job and one was sort of leading the other one through it and it's just a great movie. That was my other lasting thought, which is not a deep thought, but it was a thought I had repeatedly. That Melissa McCarthy would have been a really good headset coach for like Denis Shapovalov or something. It's the Bulgarian spot clown in you. <laughs> right? It's the greatest line of the entire movie. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> that movie's so good. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Uh. Oh, Spy. If you haven't seen Spy, please old. watch Spy. Seriously. You um, will under, like, I, I think you have to be told to watch movie. I think it looks so dumb on the surface. You have to be like. It looks so dumb. Like, I did, I was not jonesing to watch it. And then I watched it and I was absolutely floored as to how genuinely hilarious all of it was. And it made me fall in love with Rose Byrne. Uh, mm-hmm. Who I, again, thought was just like a pretty lady. 
and I like have kind of a bit of a like if if you're pretty, I just assume that you you suck at your. Gosh, that's sexist, Courtney. Um, gosh. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Men too. I assume if you're good looking, you suck at your job too. Fair. But Rose Byrne is amazing. Like her comedic timing is phenomenal, and uh, yeah, Spy's great. Be everyone be in honor of Grigor. Be embrace your inter- your inner Bulgarian clown, <laughs> and watch Spy. That's really what Grigor did this week, after all. <laughs> he did. He did. Um, so thank you guys very much for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. And for following along with us and taking our movie recommendations and everything else like that. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. Subscribe to us on iTunes, podcast app, whatever one you use. And get new episodes delivered automatically as they pop up sporadically for the rest of this fall. Leave us reviews on there as well. And speaking of future fall episodes, we introduced the NCR book club since our last episode which we are very excited about. And our first selection for that is Venus Envy by John Wertheim, which I so enjoyed rereading for the third or fourth time. So enjoyed. It is so good. delight. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback from people who've been getting them used off Amazon or from their libraries or ebook or whatever and reading it. And we hope that you can keep doing that. And we'll record a show on that pretty soon. Uh, please send us questions, thoughts to sort of join in our discussion because um, we want to get you guys. It's a book club. It's not usually just two people. It's kind of a sad club. I guess it's better than a club for one, but it's the next status club. So please chime in and give us, you know, prompts or anything that particularly stood out to you. I've seen a bunch of people, you know, even screenshotting or taking photos with their phone of the hard copy book about lines that stood out, whether it's about, you know, how normal Lindsay Davenport was or that Donald Trump was around women's tennis a lot in the 90s, all of which still baffles me. Um, So, uh, yeah, so check it out and we'll hopefully have a show on that pretty soon to wrap that up. And Courtney, I know both of us have been in sort of book acquisition phase for tennis lately, yeah, which has like been really fun. Of I know. Other. Yeah. Like we hadn't talked about it really. No. Um, but yeah, no, I think as people know, occasionally Courtney fall, goes into like an Amazon rabbit hole. Um, and I think like one night I just like decided to like, um, I think I was trying to order, I think it was the night that I ordered the, the Grace Lichtenstein book, mm-hmm. which everybody should order and read. Yeah. It's great. It might um, not be easy to find, but you should definitely do it. Grace Lichtenstein yeah, book but, called but that was A Long Way, Baby. Like, or You've Come a I Long had, Way, whatever. You've Come a Long Way, Baby. But like, um, but that's what I'd kind of, I'd never order used books on Amazon. Oh, I do all the time. But yeah, so that was kind of my entry point. And then I just kept like, oh, there's this book. And there's this, oh, I haven't read this Martina book. I haven't read this book about Chrissy and Everett or Chrissy and Martina. Um, Ted Tingling, um, and then also like all of, you know, Frank DeFord's tennis books and things like that. So I just kind of like kept clicking and, and, and whatever and, and filling things up. And yeah, so I, that's how I ended up acquiring a bunch of books. And so that's my kind of big off-season thing. And that's when I kind of pitched to Ben like, hey, let's do this NCR book club thing because I'm going to be reading these books anyway. And yeah, and so far it's been great. I mean, I, I obviously finished the the Lichtenstein book and Venus Envy when I was overseas. And then I came back to a large pile of books that, that I'm going to attack that I'm looking at right now. And I don't even know where to start, but, um, but I would highly recommend people do it because I think that if you've listened to me talk uh, many, many times about tennis and, and current tennis versus historical tennis, I think that, that it, it behooves all of us to really kind of understand where the sport came from and the, and the champions that it built 
um, that this sport has been built on because it's kind of a baby sport. We haven't been around it all that long. No, it's pretty obviously. new. That's what you especially realize that with the Liechtenstein book is that yeah. she's writing about the book. And this is one we might do for book club later. Um, although we wanted to pick Venus Envy Park. We knew it'd be really easy to find for people copies. And I don't know if Grace's book is out as an ebook. actually. I kind of doubt it is. That's a good point. But um, And it might not be that easy to find even used copies of it. But maybe we'll figure something out. Um, but it's when the tour is in 1973 and they're still like figuring their stuff out, you know, like in terms yep. of what the WTA is, what the Virginia Slim circuit is, all this stuff is still really amorphous. And that's what should, it and means as, to be a female professional right. athlete. That's, that that's had a never new concept happened too. before. That's, that's a basic concept, yeah. you know? And the men's side was even messier in terms of organization and her, her side, yeah. her doesn't get into that at all, but they had way more sort of conflicting tour, you know, group whatever going on um at the same time and throughout even really until the 90s is when it really finally kind of set into its current form so um it's an interesting look back it's it's especially if you enjoyed the battle of sexes movie it's that about that same year um so a lot of margaret court and billy jean kind of you know Rosie. Yeah. And... Rosie's aw- yeah, Rosie's awesome. Rosie's awesome. Rosie's in, awesome. In I think the Lichtenstein book. <laughs> I feel like not that... She steals it. She steals it. She really does. Um I loved what they they talked to Grace Lichtenstein on the uh Double X podcast on a Double Slate. X Gadfest on Gadfest, I guess they call it, on Slate. And June Thomas is one of their co hosts who's Scottish and wonderful. Said that she was inspired to move to America by reading A Long Way Baby, which is pretty incredible. <laughs> So, no, it's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I, I posted a, a photo on the NCR um, Twitter of like my stack of books. So if you if you don't know where to start no. and, and you're looking for old books to, to kind of look into as well as I mean, I also included Sonia's new book, um, which I, I hadn't even yet. heard of that one. Yeah, I was excited to see yeah, that. Yeah, no, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a good one um, so far. So um, but yeah, no, uh, if you need a place to start, definitely kind of use that as a as a guide. But um, Venus Envy is great. Um, Grace Lichtenstein's book is great. All the Musha yeah. books and um, John Feinstein. We'll, um, we'll have it. We'll have a second NCR book club selection pretty soon. We'll try to come up with number two officially yeah. that we'll put a, put in our official sort of channel. We'll maybe do that after we finish recording tonight. Um, and I think a lot of it too. I, I just want to put this out there with respect to reading kind of the historical books, is that I think that it's kind of um, especially dawned on me kind of lately that you know, because of the infancy of our sport, like we are in a time where we live with our greats. Yeah. We live with the people who founded this sport, especially on the WTA side, but even on the ATP side as well. And um, we take a lot of that for granted. And we just kind of accept that the way that, as Ben was saying, with the way things are now have, have been how they have always been. And that's not true. And and to understand kind of why the sport is what it is, to understand why people who are in positions of power in this sport, uh, whether it be tournament directors or agents or agencies or obviously, um, you know, people who are members of the board at tours and, and CEOs at tours, to understand why they make the decisions that they make. Like, you do have to go back and you have to understand what is, like, what the DNA of the sport is. And I think that in a lot of ways, like, going back and reading these books is, is really massive. And, and part of it is also, like, I know that, like, for myself and maybe with Ben as well, I don't want to speak for you, but... Um, you know, kind of being um, and and having more access to these greats, you know, of the past. I don't know what to ask them unless I go and read these books. Right. Like otherwise, I'm they're like my understanding of tennis and modern tennis is like built with so many assumptions that these books absolutely eviscerate. Um, yeah, even Venus Andy, so- which is only seventeen years ago. 
Exactly. Yeah. No, 100%. And Venus Envy is great. I mean, again, like you guys should read it. It's available on Kindle. You can buy hard yeah. copies as well. We'll talk more and about El- it. We'll have like a whole show devoted to it pretty much coming and up. And L. John- John's an amazing writer. And I say that as in full disclosure as John would want because he is big on conflicts of interest <laughs> as a former Sports Illustrated employee and one who considers John a bit of a mentor. He's a great writer. Um, but one of the things that, that was so amazing about Venus Envy is that like it's it's so still topical like all the players that he focuses on throughout that book and um are still like so heavily um a part of of tennis culture oh yeah and and so much of that book is like it's that book is basically like tennis twitter of like 2000 yeah it you really know, like, is it really so is so much gossip like oh my god she said this and you know like it's and crazy martina, like, da- it's... martina hingis dated him and him and him <laughs> yeah exactly and him <laughs> like super casual like really Kornikova dated okay all right whatever um yeah it, it's phenomenal like if, if you like salacious tennis stuff like pick up venus and, and like pick fun up the salacious like, just like exactly yeah. not mean-spirited popcorn not... kind of stuff yeah exactly just like oh that's hilarious um but yeah, that that's my pitch for the historical stuff. I mean, the new stuff is great too. Like I said, I'm going to read the Sonya book. I'm sure we'll maybe we'll talk about the Lena book eventually. Yeah. Maria's book, you know, obviously that we we, we talked about a little of that bit. one recently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think Lena's book is still the best like biography I've read since Open. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's 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 cool. I just it's read fun. Elena Dokic's book. By the way, she might be coming you, on the show. Oh soon. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I read so that, stay yeah. tuned for that. Uh, I'll at least yep. have a New York Times article on that book really soon. Um, nice one. So, yeah, so that's out there, too. That's been doing really well in Australia. Um, Did you make sure to write about Roger potentially breaking records before you wrote about the Dokic thing? You know what? Or... I didn't. That never occurred to me, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, it just never did. Wow. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> that's an inside joke. If you know, you know. If you don't, don't worry about it. Um. Yeah, so <laughs> we're having a lot of fun with it. Keep reading. Literacy is good. I've read a lot more books this year than I have in years past. Um, in the last like five years and I'm enjoying a lot. I'm currently <laughs> my current NCR book club. I'm reading or not NCR book club. I wouldn't think I'll ever make it into this uh, pantheon of NCR club books is a book by it's the weirdest book. It's by Judy Nelson and a ghostwriter. But weirdly, <laughs> but weirdly, <laughs> like way late into this book, I'm like on page like 160 something of like 200. And all of a sudden, the ghostwriter gets introduced as a character. And both what? she and Judy are being talked about in the third person the whole time. It's so weird. Mm. This book is very strange. I like looked at ben, like ben, and then it's ben like Ben sent me excerpts and I was howling. Howling. <laughs> there's one there's there's fax machine drama you would not believe. I, I'm just going to anyone who's read this book or wants to would know, but it's uh yeah. It's incredible. It's pretty. It's a mess. It, yeah. And then like and it revels in its messiness in this way that I really kind of appreciate. <laughs> like you I you knew this book was going to be a mess and it delivers, but it doesn't totally explain <laughs> itself. It doesn't like it's which makes it messier. It's it's fully messy. And there's like there's an entire like 13 pages that's like a legal document in the middle of it, which was completely illegible. It was great. Um so love it. Yeah, so I did I did just order Pam Shriver's book. Yes, I have that one. I would love yeah, to read that. I, I haven't read I it, but I would love to read yeah, it. Yeah, I haven't read it. Yeah, obviously I, I just put the order in, but um but I'm I'm excited for that. So, yeah, I mean a lot of this is just research to to do some 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 stories and interviews with some of these players like going down the road, but yeah. but yes, read. Reading's good. Reading is good. Do we have other rants raised on top of this book exaltation? You want to get oh. out there? I mean, I have so many, Ben. <laughs> Please. It's been a while. Let her rip. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin because it's been so long, you know? 
It hasn't been that um, long. It feels like longer than it has been. It's been like less than a month, right? Maybe. For me, it's been a while. I think maybe no? that's true. Yeah, because you've 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 had other. We episodes, did one right but... before Singapore, though. You were in Singapore for our last episode. That wasn't that. Ah, long that's ago, true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Anyway, it feels like so. It feels like a lifetime ago. Um. Okay. I'm gonna try and just rave about things because it's the off season, and I don't. I I I don't have time for this negativity. And I want things to be positive. Hey, Mary J. Blige. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Don't need no hateration. Um, so I'm just I'm just gonna talk about things uh, of over the last like two or three weeks that that I've 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 just loved, um, or would encourage people to consume or entertain themselves with. Um, uh, let's see. Do I start chronologically? Mm. No, that seems pointless. Um, so. <laughs> I've been on this like kind of like movie binge. Part of it is because like it's obviously the off season and I had two weeks off mm-hmm. and I had time to like catch up on things. Um, and like at, weirdly, every movie that I've watched or during that time has been great and I've really, really enjoyed them. And um, so I'm just going to list them and, and I would encourage people to watch them. I'll add maybe some caveats uh, along the way. Dunkirk was great. Oh, I still want to see that. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really really good. Is it airplaneable? Do you think? No, no. It's kind of because there's no dialogue. I mean, there is, but not a lot. Yeah, you do need a dialogue. So it's on kind an of it, yeah. It's very visual and it's very um uh auditor uh, auditory <laughs> sound. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's sound. So yeah, you kind of need to watch it in like a quiet space. Sure. Um. So so Dunkirk was great. Uh, Thor Ragnarok was amazing. You guys should all see it. Even if you don't know a damn thing about Thor, I watched it with two people who had never seen like any of the other Thor movies and didn't know much about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But Thor Ragnarok is, I think, genuinely, arguably, the best Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe movie that has been made. Uh, It is genuinely funny. For example, I think it's funnier than Spy. Um, um that's a I know big, whoa there are headsets yeah. in thor <laughs> i threw it down oh, okay. um yeah no so thor is so freaking funny it's amazing um so i highly recommend you go see thor ragnarok um mother the very controversial... i want to see mother yes okay i want you to see mother so badly because i need somebody to talk to about okay. it um because it's you can't talk about mother without spoiling it okay it's directed by darren aronofsky um, who did Noah uh, and a bunch of other movies. He's obsessed with kind of the concept of religion that plays heavily into Mother. It stars Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem and um, Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer. It is freaking crazy. I think that it should come with a gazillion trigger warnings because there's a lot of stuff that's in the movie that is, like, shocking. Okay. Like, And I mean that from, like, a very, like... Like, I would be scared. I would not recommend this movie to a lot of women that I know. Mm. It's brutal. Um, and there's certain scenes that I, I will never forget and certain sounds that I will never forget. Um, but it's interesting. I haven't stopped talking about it. Um, yeah, it's 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 tremendous. So Mother, I'm not going to say go watch it, but I will just say that I thought, and I won't even say that I enjoyed it because I didn't. <laughs> It was a harrowing experience, this, but it's an experience. This reminds me, sidebar, of how I felt about Gummo. Did you ever see Gummo? I never saw Gummo. Oh, don't see Gummo. Gummo was like, <laughs> Gummo was like, I needed a support group for Gummo. Like, immediately. Oh, I don't know if anybody has ever seen Gummo. I'm sure someone out there in our listeners has seen Gummo. 
Send me a note if you just want to talk about Gummo somewhere, just like quietly, and we can, Oof. you know, reflect and move on, put it behind us. Oof. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot. Mother's tough. Yeah. Mother, mother is very tough. And if it, if it triggers you, if it sends you into depression, if it makes you walk out, please don't get mad at me. I'm just warning you now. Maybe just don't. Um, it sounds like is it not sounds not worth the risk. It might not be. It might not be. I, like I said, I, I would never recommend this movie to people. But if you do end up seeing it, like hit me up because it's I, I think it's a really interesting movie to talk about. Um, I saw Manifesto. Um, I don't know if I don't, many never people heard in the states one. have. Yeah, so I don't know if many people in the states have heard about it. It stars Kate Blanchett and pretty much only Kate Blanchett playing thirteen different characters. <laughs> it is based off of. It a... sounds like a Louis Vertel to me. <laughs> I know, seriously, it really does. Um, but it's based off of an art installation that was basically a bunch of televisions playing, it, looping, uh, people reading manifestos. Okay. So it'd be like Marx and uh, a bunch, like art, a lot of manifestos regarding art um, mm-hmm. and things like that. So Kate Blanchett plays thirteen different characters that, like, basically their entire di- their entire monologue is sections of these manifestos or combinations of, and it's re- <laughs> it's fucking weird, <laughs> but it was great because it's freaking Kate Kate Blanchett being amazing. So I highly recommend that. Um, I watched this great movie that I think is on Netflix um, called, uh, it's a really long title and I always get it wrong. Um, I don't think I belong in this world anymore, I think is the name of the the movie. Okay. Um, It stars Melanie Linsky, who if you see, you know, and Elijah Wood. It's one of the best movies that I've seen all year. Mm. It was weird. It was savage. It was a weird rumination about, I mean, it's an interesting character study, but it's also just kind of about how human beings can be absolutely terrible, which I know we don't need a additional reminder of in 2017, but it was really good. And I enjoyed that a lot. So I recommend that. Um, yeah, I went back, I was going through a a Godard phase during Asia. So I was watching a lot of like old French movies Mm. Um, Breathless is still, I think, an amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to, I'm just going to probably end it with that. But, um, yeah, movies are great. Go watch movies. Enjoy them. Have fun. Oh, sorry. I'm going to add one more thing because this was actually supposed to be my rave. Um, I'm just going to put out a rave for Mike Schur. Uh, oh, good place. Yeah. So. I watched the first Michael season Sh- of that during this uh, during the fall. And what did you think? I enjoyed it. It was like it was just like a very sort of like pleasant thing. It wasn't like I didn't like change my life on any level, but it was like a lovely way to spend twenty two minutes at a time. A great way, a, a ringing endorsement. Season two, even better. Okay, good. Uh, so so Michael Schur is um, uh, a TV producer, TV writer. He's basically been a part of like so many projects that I've loved. So he did um, some of the American version of The Office. If you watch The Office, uh, he played Moe's, Dwight's cousin. <laughs> uh, that was that was Mike Schur. Um, and he also was the showrunner for Parks and Rec, which, as we all know, I love very much. Um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is an amazing show as well. And currently, as Ben mentioned, The Good Place, starring uh, Veronica Mars as Kristen Bell, Ted Danson, um, and uh, 
Yeah, which is awesome. That woman Anyways. who works at um, at Solstice. Like every time I see, even though she's on the show, all oh my the time, gosh, I know Karen. I always think of her. Car- as, oh, Solstice yeah. girls here again. Janet, Janet, yeah, That's yeah. Right, Janet, she's so good. She's, she's like, she's so she's so good. I mean, that, everybody her, who's cast her, her, be- her beach scene is amazing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love that scene so much. Um, but yeah, so Mike Schur has created all these things that I love. He also, and I think I've mentioned this in the past, if you've listened to to NCR, he also was like a real big reason why I got into sports writing because he, as his pen name, Ken Tremendous, Mm. uh, and a bunch of his friends uh, started this blog back in the day called Fire Joe Morgan, which was one of the greatest sports blogs ever Mm -hmm. in the history of sports blogs, where he and his friends basically tore apart um, baseball articles, basically fact-checked them, through stats in their face. I still say that tennis needs a fire Joe Morgan. I say that as a tennis writer, like there should be people who like make it their job to tear apart statistically the assumptions that I, I have. And it happens on, it happens on Twitter, but it could be more unified. The thing about Twitter is like Twitter, you can have this like sense of satisfaction, like, Oh, I tore you apart, but it's ephemeral. Right. It doesn't sit anywhere. It won't show up on Google and hurt the person. Right. Fire Joe Morgan, and the title comes from the fact that Joe Morgan, who was a baseball analyst for ESPN, who absolutely rejected statistics and sabermetrics and Moneyball and all that. So, and these guys were very statistic Moneyball driven. uh, So they were just like constantly tearing Joe Morgan apart. But like the fact is like I would go back and read Fire Joe Morgan because the writing was so good and they would just so eviscerate so many shitty baseball writers. And... Like I said, there's a lot to be said about that sort of thing to exist within tennis. Mm-hmm. And board I, knows there's I, plenty of blowhardery in, t- in tennis writing. Absolutely, and, and I'm it sure which we're not more than just like sometimes. right, exactly. No, 100. percent I'm sure that there are tons of problematic things that I've written or whatever, but we should be called out on it. Mm-hmm. And when we we get called out on it, maybe that changes behavior. But when you put it onto Twitter and you feel so good about taking down people, but it doesn't live anywhere. It just, I don't know. But anyway, so 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 Mike Schur was Ken Tremendous. He did all that. Anyways, in 2015, I got to be on a podcast with Mike Schur. That's right. Remember? On for, Hang Up, right? Um, on Hang Up, yeah. For Hang Up and Listen for Slate, uh, I was the guest to talk about Serena going for potentially the, the calendar year Grand Slam. And Mike Schur was there to discuss, I believe it was baseball at the time. But he was, like, asking me questions about, like, Serena. I was trying to, like, keep it cool and, like chill out and like not be weirded out but i was like oh my gosh it's mike sure anyway i love him i love the the heart that he brings to the sitcoms and the comedy that he does uh parks and rec i think is a great example of that and good place as well um and um and yeah he's he seems like a good dude and uh and i i love that he exists and make things that i love so shout out to mike sure a good shout out there indeed um i feel like this has been a long time but i will keep mine relatively quick uh quick sorry no no, no 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 it's good i think people if you if they wanted to stop listening they could stop listening a long time ago and they're you're still here <laughs> so thank you um i will rave briefly about racket which i think i became officially like senior Yay, editor of and joining you on the masthead of that which is a great honor uh if you were a original kickstarter backer of racket first of all thank you second of all it's time to re-up to get the next four issues of our quarterly uh so episode uh, issues five six seven eight or if you yeah i guess that's really only we need to re-up if you started number one 
Um, so please do that. Uh, five is coming out pretty soon. It's beautiful as per, and you will like it quite a bit. Um, my other rave is for this app that I tweeted about uh, called HQ, which are these like live game show style trivia things, like twice a day, oh, like three p.m. Trivia. I love. I, it's it's really fun because like a, it feels like you're on a game show again and it's like i say again because i was on jeopardy once and i actually have closure on the, i'll get to that in a second um, <laughs> um uh in that so anyway it's called hq if you want to give me like extra points or whatever you can use uh referral code ben rothenberg that'd be cool you don't have to um but please do and it's just like it happens and there's a host and it's live and it's just a, it's a cool sort of thing and the questions are ridiculous at a certain point um, but you can, if you get lucky enough to make it all the way through the thing, you do get some small amount of real money. So that's somewhat nice and it's free to play. Um, and then, yeah, so on Jeopardy, uh, I was on Jeopardy, which I didn't really talk about at length on the show ever. It was a very weird time when I was on Jeopardy. Um, I was on Jeopardy. I recorded it on March, what was it? Sixth or seventh. It was over that Monday was the same day that Sharapova had her press conference revealing her meldonium positive test. And I was being sequestered away with no phone access during that whole thing. So that was a weird can I, thing. Can I just tell you, though, to get out of the story? Yeah, please. And just say that one of the most amusing things during that 48, 72 hours was seeing all the people who were calling you out. Oh, God. For like, for like not commenting. Your about silence Sher- speaks volumes. Your silence speaks volumes. You are You're complicit. so in the bag for Sharapova. I was like, no, he's sequestered <laughs> and playing Jeopardy. Like, <laughs> It's sometimes we have lives that are separate and apart from the tennis, but okay. Right. People, but, people read into like, oh, you tweeted the score of this match, but not this match. It was like, yeah, I was asleep during that other one. I don't care <laughs> that it was 4 p.m. or whatever time it be. I have powers to sleep whenever I want. And don't read into, don't feel, you know, upset that, or don't read any intent into what I tweet or don't tweet. Like I tweet like well, results of 20, if I get like a resultina result that Taylor Townsend won a 25K, I might tweet it. Doesn't mean that it's more important than anything that happened in you know zhuhai or singapore but i happened to see it and it was there that's but all it's it always that other thing too that that sometimes people don't uh it, and again i remember thinking about this like when yeah like because i knew that you were filming the jeopardy thing and i was like wow this is awkward but um but like we're not paid to tweet from our personal accounts no. that is literally not our jobs and if anything, I'm sure our employers would prefer that we just don't <laughs> um, at all. Uh, but yeah, so tweets are optional, and so they should be read accordingly. So just because Ben didn't tweet about Maria Sharapova getting popped for meldonium. Within the few first few hours of it happening. Yeah, yeah, wasn't a referendum. And I had a podcast out on it that night. I, I went and... Oh, so yeah, I, that's right. I, I went and lost on Jeopardy!, um, Long, I guess I've, I've sort of promised to talk about this at some point in the show, so I'll just do it now. But I went on. I tried out like seven months before I got called to be picked on it. It was really convenient, actually, because it was like the Monday before Indian Wells started, and it was in Los Angeles. So geographically, it was very nice. I could make only one trip out to California. Um, but I like had – I was just – I don't think it was nerves. It was just more, more excitement or just my brain being in overdrive that I like, could not sleep like at all the night before it. it I taped. I got like two, maybe 90 minutes of sleep because I, you had to get on the shuttle to go to the studio. They picked you up from the hotel at like 6 a.m. And so I finally fell asleep at like, I don't know, 3.30 and then woke up at 5 to, you know, shower and get dressed and everything. So I was very groggy um, and out of it the whole time. And then I wound up being on, they taped five episodes a day and I wound up being on the fourth episode. They taped Monday through Friday of a week all in one day on the show. Um, 
And so Alex Trebek changes outfits four times during that one day. Um, and so I was on what wound up being the Thursday episode. They just call it, they pull out two names out of the hat of the people who were there just right before the show starts. So it wasn't like I found, I knew at the beginning I was gonna be on the Thursday show. I didn't know until, until like 15 minutes before the show started. Um, so I've been drinking a lot of caffeine and like Coke and coffee and stuff and just sort of generally, um, very bleary and out of it, but obviously there's also (laughs) Coca-Cola. Yes. I'm sure people, I'm sure people have done cocaine on Jeopardy and it's probably helped them, but it's not my style. Um, yeah, like a lot of like diet it's coke. It's amusing and... to think of you, what, like what you might be like if you were on coke, because <laughs> I do not know what that might be. I but it's can't say I would know either. I don't think it would be good. Don't do drugs, kids. Um, and but the, the person was saying one of the one of the producers on Jeopardy was saying that she had seen people like definitely take a lot of Xanax, which would help. Um, yeah. But anyway, so anyway, so I was on against a guy who had beaten. There was a at the beginning of my day. There was a six-time champion named Andrew Pow. Who I think was a music professor at Oberlin, who came back, and then he lost in his first episode. This guy named Buzzy, who then won three episodes on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and wasn't like super impressive in any of them, but kept winning. And we got really lucky in his second one. He was losing by a lot, going into Final Jeopardy of his second episode, and the guy um, who was leading missed some really easy question where like the clue was like who drinks blood, and the answer was Dracula, and he put like I don't know Germanol or something way too fancy. Um, and uh, so then I go on, I am, long story short, I'm winning, going to Final Jeopardy, and then I lose on a question about the Leeward Islands, because I don't know how to translate Leeward into French. I can't even use Leeward in a sentence in English. It's just not a word I have command of, I've realized all this time later. Um, and then I lost, and so, and then I was very bitter and sad about that for quite a while, because i gotten, like, more, speaking of all your Fire Joe Morgan and things, like, all the... <laughs> jeopardy advanced stats metrics out there which there are many of <laughs> like i like all the sort of advanced metrics i was winning like by far in this game and didn't matter because it's a game show which i eventually have come to peace with and it's not supposed to you know act logically it's supposed to be an entertainment thing and that's fine anyway buzzy went on to win nine episodes and then he just came back like 18 months later and won the tournament champions this past week um so i feel um Okay, I, I, smug, I guess, is the only word for it. I'm smug about that. Does, do you? Because this is the thing. It's that, both, though. Bringing this back to tennis. Yeah. I've often wondered with players, like, if a player beats you, do you hope that they win the title? Yeah. Or do you hope that they lose and get double bageled in their ma- next so match? So here's you know the thing. What I mean? So here's so the how thing. Do you feel? I was going into the tournament, cha- going into both these tournament champions with like a very win-win attitude, because I had dueling thoughts. One was. Buzzy was Buzzy's success winning nine episodes, which was like a like one of the top ten longest streaks in Jeopardy history. It was like way up there, but he never seemed that impressive to me. And so my part of me was thinking Jeopardy's just all bullshit and it's all luck, and that he could sort of fluke these nine episodes. You know, says that. And if he gets absolutely killed, tournament champions, I'll feel vindicated that way. Like it was all kind of meaningless. But then it if was he, your Ostapenko. right? <laughs> Imagine him having be a, real, right? Yeah, maybe that that could be it. He's he, but yeah, but Ostapenko, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that wasn't really it, anyway. It's a hard style comparison to me. I'm not sure what what player he would be. He'd probably be more like the uh, okay. That's a different thought. What player <laughs> is Buzzy? Um, well, we were debating actually which player I was in terms of like having blown match points. I thought I was the Misaki Doi or the the Lucy Safarova of Australian Opens, of having match points and not converting, both of which are fair. Um, could be I like, still think the Ostapenko-Halep comparison works. But I didn't make the final. 
Yeah, we're talking about a singular match. You were like right there. You were in control. That's true. And then you weren't. And then I wasn't. And then and then Ospenko happens. Maybe that's right. Maybe Ospenko is the Leeward Islands of my life. Um, <laughs> and I've like been to the Leeward Islands, I realized afterwards, but no one called them that when I was there. What did they call them? Well, it, I was in the Virgin Islands, which are like part of the Leeward Islands. Oh. The, the Leeward Islands okay. was not like a country or anything. It's like a, it's like a, like a, you know, supranational grouping of certain Caribbean islands that got slammed by a lot of hurricanes this year. Um, Can I just say that it's really clear that you're over it? I'm really over it. No, but I was so, <laughs> I was so legitimately bitter and salty for like a solid month or six weeks. I remember that same week that happened. Um, <laughs> I was really bitter about this. And I'm pretty sure you could tell that that week. And uh, Sheriff Hope got suspended, which was just yeah, kind of an Ben's, odd. Ben hasn't been the same for a while. <laughs> yeah, and then Sheriff Hope got suspended, um, which was didn't really bother me that much in terms of, like, a life event. But it was just sort of a pall over the sport. And then your dog died that same week. So it was yeah, not, that was pretty brutal. It was not a great week for Team NCR. Um, it wasn't great. No. It wasn't great. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah. So that, anyway... On HQ, bring it back. I got in my game show redemption. I don't know, but Buzzy won, so I felt like yeah. I in the end, I was definitely rooting for him. Having been very ready okay. for him to lose on his original run, I was like, he when he kept winning, I was like, how is this guy still winning? What is going on here? I was kind of happy when he finally lost then, but once he came back, but did, I was were you very... rooting for him because you realized okay, this guy's pretty good, or were you rooting for him to make it so that your loss didn't seem so like bad? I wanted to be able to brag about being that I should have beaten the guy who won the tournament of champions. There it is. That's all. Yeah. It's just it's just pure selfish no, smuggery. Think, yeah. Yeah, but, but but I think that again, bringing it back to tennis, I think that that's how most pl- tennis players feel. They should. Like, oh, I had I had I had that guy or that girl on the ropes, and you know, because the obvious, as opposed to like, oh, I got busted, and then that player got busted in the next round. The, like that. Because the shitty. obvious unknown is how I would have done if I had won instead of him. How if I would have kept going. And mm. I know I watched the next episode, which would have been, which was his one after his fifth episode, which would have been my second episode. And I didn't know the answer to the final Jeopardy or like any of the three daily doubles on that in that episode. So I would okay. have had been hard pressed to maybe win that one, maybe. But the ones after that, I know I would have done really well on. And, probably, and also the people on them weren't that great. So I could have gotten on like if I'd gotten past number two, I could have easily gotten like six. So okay. it's a mixed thing. So in terms of being Lucy Safarova in twenty fourteen. Maybe. I don't know. It's an interesting question for, for players and even even low-level players who've been at any sort of sporting event. Do you root for the team who beat you? And even, even as a fan, you know, if you're like a March Madness in March Madness and your team loses, do you right. root for that team to go on and keep winning or do you want to see them immediately suffer? See, There's arguments the for both. Like, for me personally, I always want that team to suffer. Mm-hmm. But like when I But I have posed this question to a lot of players. And almost universally, all of them are like, oh, I hope they, like, continue to play well or win the title or something like that. Unless it's, like, a seriously bad loss. And this is what – Like, where they're just like, I do not respect you and I just – I can't believe that I lost to you. But, like, for the most part, like – And certainly, like, top players have said this about upsets. Like, I know, like, when Andy Roddick lost to – I want to say it was Tipsarovich at the U.S. Open maybe – Oh, yeah. I, remember um, I think he, that like, match. at the net was like, you better not lose in the next round, dumbass, or something like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> just classic erotic charm. He did. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Did he? Yeah, I'm not sure. He probably did. Um, I'm but, pretty sure he did. But, like, I think Serena said something similar to Muguruza when she beat her at the French that one time, the first when, mm. second round. I think there was some similar. Serena's definitely said something along those lines before. Um, yeah, I mean, because, if you're going to take somebody big out, like, right. don't waste it, right? I mean, even from the. Uh, 
spectator point of point of view, like we get annoyed with that. Yeah. Right. Like like or even from the writing perspective, like somebody pulls off a massive upset, and then you don't even have time to like tell you the, tell their story and to build the momentum. They're out like either the next day if you're at a a tour level event, or two days later if you're at a, a slam. Yeah. I mean, it's just frustrating. No, it is. Like, well, what was the point of that? Yeah, no, it's a very, it's a very, very common story in tennis. I mean, like the Rosol loses next match, or you know, Istman loses next, or whoever it is. Istman, actually, and when they do win one, I think we now we realize like, wow, they actually won another match. That's amazing. When like I think Istman won one more match after he beat Djokovic this year, I want to say, in Australia. And I completely like... forgot he beat Djokovic <laughs> this year. No, yeah, but so all that is to say, I mean, it was it was overall Jeopardy was overall a good experience, and that people were like friends and family, like people I hadn't talked to in a long time were like very excited that I was on there. And so that was, you know, giving them that sort of moment of, Hey, I know somebody on jeopardy. That was cool. Um, personally still, you know, bitter. And if I'd gotten that one question, I would have had like not inconsequentially like $26,000, which would have been nice. But, um, and then, you know, and then whenever I would have won a subsequent episode, it's not that I was there mostly for the money, but money is also nice. Um, and it also just, what well, it did, ha- bitter. what it did hammer, right. I would, you know, would have been nice. And then mm. what it did hammer home to me for work wise though, it's just like the massive, ma- and I know this is a sports writer, but it made it even clearer. The massive, massive difference between winning and losing things. Like, you know, the amount of like bragging rights you get for being on Jeopardy versus winning on Jeopardy. It's so huge. You know, mm-hmm. if you're like, if you're, that's a good point. Yeah. If you're, you know, let's say um Agnieszka Radvanska or uh, Yana Navatna you know if you make a Wimbledon final like oh you made a Wimbledon final okay you know good for you but if you are Wimbledon champion it's just such a different thing and she proved that and I have not yet reached her level so that's that dare to dream dare to dream we, we should we should all dream to have that Yana Novotna moment. Right? Because it is a fairy tale you know, moment. Most people don't get that moment. It's a fairy tale moment, moment and, and, and it's like the, um, it's like that famous scene from, from um, Pretty Woman. Oh, this point. <laughs> big mistake. Big mistake. Huge mistake. Huge. Like, everyone should have that moment where you get to, to whoever it is, the people who tormented you, the people who laughed at you, the people who rejected you, and you get to just throw a couple of middle fingers up in the air. Just one. You shouldn't have that all the time because then you're just a bit of an asshole. But like, get it out of your system. You know, once. Yeah. Yeah. Just one time, get to like kind of have it, have a leg up on somebody. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. And with that, we will see you guys later. Read Venus Envy. We'll talk about it next time. Bye, guys. Ciao, ciao. Happy Thanksgiving.